0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of UConn 360. It's the only podcast in the entire Milky Way that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle, and it is finals week here at the University of Connecticut. So good luck to all the students taking finals, and good luck to all the instructors who are going to be administering finals.
1: I'm taking finals.
0: You are taking finals.
1: I am. Well, by the time this is aired, I will be done. All right.
0: (laughs) All right. Uh, well, then good luck to you, Julie. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we've got a good show for you this week. Um, briefly, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we've wanted to see more uh, higher ed podcasts like this one. And uh, I don't want to blow up anyone's spot, but the, we had an inquiry from a major university. It was be- very exciting. Because they, they heard UConn 360, and they were like, you're the best podcast we've ever heard in our lives. Ever. All right, they didn't say that, but they said no. they they wanted to know how we did it because they're thinking of doing it.
2: Where'd you get Something to hang on the wall recently, though too.
0: We did. We won an award. I mean, I'm telling you, we're going from strength to strength. We are. I mean, we're bigger than the Beatles.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Well, don't um, record at Abbey Road Studios. The not yet. People I mean, Not me. yet. You record here, though. And I that's put this is better, better. than Abbey
0: Road. We <laughs> have Take foam that. Foam on the walls. George Martin.
2: <laughs> we, need right. to, we have to get him to redo the street, though, for the crosswalk. We course. do. We, so we, get, we, th- we lost our crosswalk in the road paving.
0: And we need a fourth person to do the walk thing, like the Beatles. No, we're the only ones. All right, okay.
1: We Ma- don't need a Ringo. Come <laughs> on. Anyway.
0: Anyway. <laughs> let's get into some husky head. Let's, I've always thought of myself as the it. Ringo of this, actually. But uh, let's get into some husky headlines. Now Julie. to
1: think about which one you would be. Hi.
0: <laughs> What's going on in the news?
1: I have news about Yukon in space. Yes. Yes. Uh, an experiment devised by some researchers at a Yukon startup called Lamb Division was launched into space on the SpaceX Dragon spacecraft on December 5th from Cape Canaveral. It was headed for the International Space Station's US National Laboratory. Lamb Division is a startup founded based on research by Yukon chemistry professor emeritus Robert Burge, and it's led by alums Nicole Wagner and Jordan Greco, who are both students in Burge's research group. They're working to commercialize a retinal implant to cure blindness for millions of patients suffering from retinitis pigmentosa, and age-related macular degeneration. So their technology is a very thin film that's kind of like a contact lens that can be implanted in these patients. And on Earth, they have these robotic stations that create it and it takes them about five days to produce one of these implants. So they believe that the film will be more homogeneous and stable when it's created in the weightless conditions of the ISS. And they think it'll also be able to be made with fewer layers of protein, saving a lot of time and money. And if it's successful, it will help them make a better product that they can get to market more quickly.
0: Very nice. I hope this brings us one step closer to having a campus in outer space.
1: Oh, my God. I don't know if I'd want to do that.
0: Yukon Space?
1: <laughs> no no more specific nope, than
0: that. We just, well,
2: Ken, what's going on? Uh, two of our faculty members have been named 2018 Fellows of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is the world's largest general scientific society, and the publisher of the journal Science, which I think many people know about. Physicist Nora... Barra and Professor Emerita of Dental Medicine, Susan Reising, were chosen for their scientifically or socially distinguished efforts to advance science and its applications. Professor Barra is a former head of the physics department and has been recognized many times for her distinguished contributions to the field of molecular dynamics. More specifically, she pioneered the nonlinear science using X-ray lasers and spectroscopy using synchrotron light sources. A lot of What is that you would say? Yes. This is a type of particle accelerator, which I think we know about, Mm -hmm. in which the magnetic field strength increases with the energy of particles to keep their orbit radius constant, that accelerator thing that we heard about in uh, Europe. Her research explores transformational changes occurring inside molecules when they're exposed to ultra-intense beams of light, and in particular, they investigate physical molecular processes that occur at the femtosecond timescale do we know what that is
1: i have no idea what you're talking about of
0: course i know what that is <laughs> yes,
1: of course
2: one quadrillionth or one millionth of one billionth of a second huh wow that's a femtosecond cool Professor Reising served as the Associate Dean of Research for the School of Dental Medicine from 2004 to 2014 and has been recognized for her distinguished contributions to the field of psychosocial outcomes of oral disease, specifically on social functioning, quality of life and behavioral issues and health disparities, and her current work, uh, her research is on oral hygiene interventions with seniors in low-income housing. Uh, she and her collaborators are working with seniors who live in Hartford using motivational interviews to shed light on oral health-related quality of life. You have to have good oral health and teeth to be able to eat and enjoy life.
1: I'm very impressed that we have these people. Yes. At our distinguished university.
0: As for me, you know, it's December, and so it's beginning to look a lot like non-specific seasonal holiday. And uh, to mark the holiday, uh, the University of Connecticut sent out a holiday greeting by email and on all of our digital channels featuring a video showing many of our students performing the song Deck the Halls, uh, all different types of musicians and performers from a cappella singers to jazz band to human beatboxes and everything in between.
2: More importantly, they were recorded on those microphones that you what? were sitting in wow,
0: front. Wow. Incredible. Um, this It's a really good video, and it looks like it was seamless but it was a huge logistical challenge. Yes. I couldn't even Shout say. I can't Angie. even say. <laughs> and our uh, our very talented coworker Angie Ray's put the whole thing together. Videographer Angie Ray's, and uh, it was a huge, huge undertaking for her. But the end result is fantastic. Very um, I don't. Again, I don't want to blow up anyone's spot. But there's a newspaper columnist in Connecticut who despises the University of Connecticut. Uh, and it's an alum, uh, and he got, he got it in his email because the alums got it in their emails, and he loved it. Oh! And he nice. he was asking us which uh, agency we hired to do it. No agency. No
1: agency. We it. got lots of talent in this building, baby.
0: Angie Reyes LLC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if she's. Yeah, and we had a click track,
2: so they could all be on time. I mean, it's it's,
0: it, it's a really cool. It's like it strings together all these performances seamlessly. Just so. go watch it. Don't yeah, listen to us talk about it. Pause and,
1: this. Watch it, and then come back.
0: You know, in fact, maybe uh, maybe we'll hear a little bit of that later on in the program.
1: <gasps> oh, but you still should watch
0: it. You still should watch it. And uh, you know, speaking of engaging with us, <laughs> all right, I can't, I can't even think of a segue here. Uh, Julie, you've got a journalism thing. <laughs>
1: The <laughs> Yeah, I guess that works. Uh, I kind of have a repeat guest this week. Marie Shanahan, who's an associate professor of journalism, uh, appeared on our episode 8, which feels like a lifetime ago, about the Yukon Science Lawn Fake News panel. If you haven't heard that, pause us again and go listen to that one. But anyway, uh, Marie created a new class in fall 2017 in which a small group of students create a weekly newsletter that spotlights Connecticut News, aptly titled The Roundup. The newsletter has gained uh, more than 400 subscribers, in just over a year. It's also spawned a podcast called Behind the Stories where students talk to the journalists they're following week in and week out. Just a heads up that some of this is from a recent interview and some is from fall 2017, so you might hear a couple different time shifts there when the class started. Back then, I asked Shanahan where the idea for the course came from and how it works.
3: Well, I teach an intro to online journalism class, and I've been teaching that same class for five years, and it's getting a little repetitive. <laughs> I do change it up because technology keeps changing, but I wanted to take it to the next level. And I have had I've actually quite a few of you, the students who I have in this class have said, oh, Professor Shannon, are you going to teach an advanced class? And I say, I don't know. I don't have one. So last semester after I, I spoke at WNPR for an event where they said, what's the role of the local press in a Trump presidency? And after that event, John Dankowski had asked, had asked that question. I kept thinking to myself, well, what's, what's my role as a journalism professor here at UConn? in this environment, because journalists are being attacked all the time, trust is really low, how can UConn journalism do something to, first of all, force me to pay attention to Connecticut News, but then also, you know, help local journalists, like, give them the attention that they deserve for the hard work that they're doing. So I said, well, I'm going to turn that into, like, a service project for my students. So I pitched it to Professor Colorado, our department head, and she said, yeah, do it. It was, like, at the very last minute. So I emailed all these guys, and I said, do you want to take this class? And they were all like, sure. So um, luckily, I was able to recruit enough students for the class. Uh, Eliza even joined us late. I I over-enrolled, because it was such a great idea. It was grassroots from the bottom up. So we had to come up with a name. We had to come up with a template. We had to figure out who was our audience. We had zero audience. So how are we going to grow our audience? Basically, the audience was the seven of us, the eight of us in this class, and our parents. So how do, we, how do we grow that? Um, and then, I, so what I did is I assigned everyone in the class. I made a huge spreadsheet with every news organization in Connecticut that I could think of, mainstream. And some, you know, some ethnic media. So I do have some Spanish speakers in the class. And I assigned everyone to keep track of you know, six or seven news organizations every week. But it really showed, like, there's a lot of stuff out there. Yes. Some news organizations have better online sites and presence than others. So they weren't just looking at the news organization. They were also looking at the news organizations, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, particular editors and reporters, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. So it ends up being, you're really keeping track of more than just like, you're not just looking at one account. You're looking right. at a whole bunch of stuff right. all the time. So they had to figure out their best workflow for themselves to, to, to pay attention. And so we meet on Tuesday and Thursday. So Tuesday, we have a meeting and they pitch their stories that they've saw since the previous Friday about what, what they think um, we should highlight and obviously some things could change by, <laughs> by Thursday, and then we sort of keep track until we meet again on Thursday morning, and then we, we make a decision. One student every week is assigned to anchor the um, the roundup, so they can write it in their voice, but they get feeds from everybody else. So everyone writes their little summaries. Sometimes we had way too much stuff. We had to take stuff out. Um, we, you know, like there's there's a lot of good journalism and stuff people needed to know. So we, I, we made a section at the bottom that was like best of the rest, where we just basically wrote headlines and put stuff in there. Um, We wanted to make it a little fun because there's a lot of bad news out there, so we added, like, things to do at the bottom. And I think the
1: reception was, was, was pretty good. Reception was pretty good, especially from journalism students. The class quickly became popular with students begging Shanahan to continue to offer it each semester. As the first semester went on, the course evolved to include the students reaching out to the reporters they were following to learn more about their process. Shanahan says the goals for the class are not only to provide a service by helping readers navigate the daily barrage of news they face, but to provide students a variety of lessons that will help them in their future careers.
3: One thing I always tell my students in class, too, is like, journalists nowadays... Like, there's no dearth of information. Like, there's plenty of information out there. Like, what people need is a guide, a guide they can trust to find the information that they need to find. So, in a lot of ways, we are that guide, but I also want these students to do some original, you know, original reporting on their own. So, if the learning process is learning the process of
1: how a professional journalist does their job, then, then that's useful. Senior Maddie Gearloff, a communications and journalism double major, said the Roundup reflects trends in the way people
4: consume news today. I think it's just the way people like to consume their news as of recent, or it's a growing trend in how people like to consume their news. I know for me, I don't pay for cable in my apartment because it's expensive, and I don't need it, and I'm not home enough. So I get the BuzzFeed News newsletter. That's how I like to start my day. I like these short, condensed blocks. If something intrigues my interest, then I can click into the main article. If it doesn't intrigue my interest, then at least I know what's going on, I'm educated, and I can move on to the next thing. Being a consumer of that, too, has helped us craft our newsletter as well
1: off is one of five students in a spinoff of the newsletter class, a one-credit publication practice course where students who previously worked on the newsletter produced the Behind the Stories podcast.
3: The Roundup as a newsletter, um, so everyone is aggregating content. There's some original stuff, but not a lot. So every week I was having them try to reach out to some of the reporters and talk to them about their process of the story behind the story. And I thought it'd be nice to culminate the semester with actually you know, interviewing mm-hmm some of the journalists that have been covering the issues that we noticed sort of every week. So there was, there was these themes that we saw running through every newsletter. And that's when I said, all right, let's try a podcast, is that thematically we saw the things that were running all the way through. So Guns was one, Me Too was another one
1: racism. Since that first semester, students in the course have produced podcasts about how journalists have covered these issues, plus other running stories like Connecticut's budget battle and governor's race. Earlier this semester, the students released an episode on female sports reporters. Currently, two groups of students in the publication practice class are working on podcasts about the up-and-coming field of cannabis journalism, as well as Connecticut-based hyperlocal news sites that have stood the test of time. The students say they're honing in-demand new media skills like how to effectively produce a podcast or a newsletter, but they're also sharpening old school proficiencies, such as sound news judgment and the ability to edit. Following news organizations over the course of a semester and talking to reporters has been a great networking opportunity, even leading to internships for some students. It has also given them a glimpse into what life might be like if they enter the news business. Here's senior Riley McGinnis, a journalism and human rights major. Connecticut's such a small state that it's just daunting how much content these news sites can put out and how especially like the hyperlocal ones are still so successful. So like you get to see like what a journalist is doing because you're usually like following them. Like you'll see how, like a Yukon grad, Bailey Wright, I knew her through um, a club I'm in and she works at- um, American Record Journal. The Record Journal, thank you. Um, so whenever I was looking at the record journal, I'd see her stuff and I'd be like, when do you like rest? And, like <laughs> she'll just have stories all the time. And it's just, it's just interesting to see that and also be able to like learn from them because you are reading all these stories so then you're like oh maybe I should try this writing style or maybe I should do this. Both courses have given the students many marketable skills that they and Shanahan believe will set them apart in today's media landscape.
4: I have found myself as I'm applying for jobs and writing my cover letters talking about the newsletter a lot and how I mean starting from the beginning of the process finding news writing it but then also the other side of it which has a lot to do with promotion and social media, and creating digital flyers, and also this podcast. Connor and I went to a workshop two weeks ago in Boston, um, what he was talking about before, and everyone just emphasized how much work it takes to make a podcast. So I think there's now a push to just hire people strictly to be on a podcast crew, which is something that, even two years ago, was not even on the surface for anyone. So I think that this course in particular is definitely a cutting-edge course in the sense that it's really making us pretty marketable and giving us real things <laughs> that we can put on a resume that I think other universities haven't quite gotten there yet but more so news organizations aren't even there yet yeah. and, that, and
3: that was important to,
4: for me being
3: here at UConn that, to make sure that our program is giving you guys the skills that so you can go out and you're like you're valuable and you can move some of these newsrooms that I know still exist out there, move them forward because they need to they need that help.
1: Shanahan says she's talked about the class in Twitter chats on journalism education, and professors from around the country have asked her about how she put it together. She hopes to write an academic article about it. Among its many successes, the Endeavor has proven to Shanahan that Yukon Bred journalists are making their mark.
3: What I love, too, is that since we're paying so much attention to news in Connecticut and what the journalists are producing... I love it when, like, we come across so many stories that are written by people who graduated from <laughs> UConn journalism. like, oh, look at, like, like the Connecticut Bears got people from Yukon, Like, the, our has got people from UConn. The Record Journal, you know, NBC Connecticut, like, half the producers are all, you know, Yukon uh, people. So it's sort of nice to see that. And I would point that out, like, oh, we have, like, 14 stories that we featured. They're all written by Yukon <laughs> grads. So it's nice to see that Yukon journalism is still, like, a good pipeline into local journalism.
1: You can subscribe to The Roundup by visiting bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash The Roundup C-T, all one word. There's a link there to Behind the Stories podcast as well.
0: I'm a Roundup subscriber, and I know most of you listeners want to emulate me, so get to it. Ken, what do you have for us this week?
2: We have art this week. Yes. High-class art of all types, Uh, originating... At our former broadcast location at the Benton Museum of Art, where we started this podcast 22 episodes ago. Wow. If you can think back that far to February. Uh, The Benton has a major exhibit of one of America's most prolific portrait painters. Ellen Emmett Rand, who lived in Salisbury, Connecticut, and did most of her painting in a New York City studio. Uh, The exhibit is titled The Business of Bodies, Ellen Emmett Rand and the Persuasion of Portraiture. And that exhibit will continue through March of uh, next year. The exhibit uh, has a collection of oil paintings, drawings, photographs from the Benton's permanent collection of Rand's portraits, as well as those borrowed from museums and private collections across the country. It explores both the artist's work and the business of portraits. Uh, she made more than 800 portraits over her lifetime. The Benton owns 38 of those paintings, and 23 of the uh, paintings that are in the Benton collection are among the 59 original works of, this, of art on display. Uh, Ellen Emmett Rand began her career as an illustrator for Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Harper's Weekly, and she secured commissions from business leaders, society women, politicians, professors, lawyers, and scientists. She was the first of just two women to paint an American president when Franklin Delano Roosevelt sat for a portrait that has a very interesting story attached to it. Uh, the Business of Bodies was curated by art and art history professor Alexis Boylan, who was also the associate director of Yukon's Humanities Institute. Uh, I met Alexis Boylan at the museum, and we spoke about the exhibit.
5: We are looking right now at Ellen Emmet Rand's, the self-portrait that she created for the National Academy of Design, and a portrait that she did that the Benton owns of Mrs. Mary Potter, who was a, a local wealthy woman who had her portrait done by Ellen Emmet Rand. I like to think of sort of Ellen Emmet Rand as one of the most important female artists that you have never heard of before in terms of the fact that if there was anybody in the 1920s 30s and 40s who was rich enough and important enough and famous enough to sit for her they did. Most people at this point in time haven't heard of her. Part of this is because portraits changed so radically in the 60s and 70s and with abstraction and also a move to photography which was happening actually While she was doing these portrait paintings, she really is sort of one of the last of the great portrait painters. Tradition that really uh, took hold in the United States in the 18th and 19th century. This is the first major scholarly exhibition of her work. Really exciting. We have pieces here from the National Academy of Design, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, from Vanderbilt University, from Harvard University, from Museum of the City of New York. We also have an amazing sort of collection of her images also n- numerous pictures from private collections and some of which really haven't been seen together and many of which the Benton owned but we're also getting to literally see paintings in a way that they have not been seen since they were created which is really exciting. Let's take a walk through the exhibit. Should we take a wander? Okay sounds great. The exhibition starts off uh, where actually Ellen's uh, career started off which was being an illustrator for the newly established Vogue magazine. She was a teenager when she started illustration, um, which is both a sign of her precocious uh, artistic talent, but I think it's also important to note that it is a sign that her family was struggling financially and that she needed to go to work and uh, earn some money. Interestingly, also for a teenage woman illustrator, this is really earlier than we typically see. There's a big sort of increase in female illustrators in the 1910s and 1920s. She's really ahead of that curve. And as you can see here, a lot of the works are of men, men in the latest fashion and top coats. There's an image of sort of a golf meeting. In many senses, this would actually then prefigure what she became known for, which was as a portrait painter who could paint men very well. And I do think that one of the things that's interesting is the early work with commercial uh, newspapers and magazines, I do think made her attentive to balancing all kinds of needs and wants when making an image, that sort of her creativity in these images, you know, we can clearly understand that the editor has certain clothes that he wants featured, uh, certain poses, certain people. So she is, early in her career, rooted in a collaborative mode of creating art. One of the other things that we have, and that this is a fantastic and really uh, interesting addition to this exhibition, is we have period clothes throughout the exhibition exhibition, and here we have two pieces from uh, two women's dresses from the time that Ellen Emmett Rand would have been working for Vogue magazine. As you can see in Ellen Emmett Rand's paintings how much she really uses clothing to define the person, to sort of give us hints about who the person wants to be. And again, I think this ties into her early illustrative work that uh, clothes really do make the man and woman in her portraits. At the end of the room here, um, one of her prize-winning images in the studio, which is a really interesting piece. If you just take a quick glance at it, it looks like a picture, a a fairly generic painting of a girl, a young girl, sitting in a white dress with a cat. But if then you start to look at it carefully, what you realize is that Rand has slyly put a mirror behind the girl, and in that mirror what you see is a reflection of Rand herself doing the portrait, which, for those um, who are familiar with art, is clearly a reference to the great La Meneneas, which is uh, Velazquez's sort of great portrait piece from the Baroque era. And even at this early moment, we see Rand just being very strategic about positioning herself as both an artist who does fashionable images of young children, but is also then giving us this sort of sly intellectual and artistic nod.
2: At this point in our tour, in the corner of the Benton's East Gallery, we come upon an empty frame. Just to the right of the frame, there is a newspaper photo of Rand holding her brushes and paint palette looking at President Franklin D. Roosevelt with her portrait of FDR behind them. Professor Boylan told the story of the presidential portrait.
5: Peter Rand went to Hyde Park and asked to see his grandmother's painting, at which point they could not locate it. For a while, the official sort of story seemed to be that it was stolen, although it's a pretty niche market to have ex-presidential portraits stolen, and it would have been the only thing that was taken at that particular moment. More likely is that it was returned from a, it was in a traveling exhibition. It then stayed in its crate, and then at some point, somebody threw the crate out. The sort of empty frame here serves to talk about the story and to also highlight the most important ransomware painting which we can't show you anymore. In truth, probably the White House wouldn't have loaned it to us, but we can dream. I think it does a job very well of sort of communicating the struggles that she had and how actively and I think aggressively um, she tried to make a, a, a name for herself that would exist historically. But I think this empty frame also signifies how very difficult that in fact was for female artists and continues to be.
2: What do you want people to take away from this exhibition?
5: Um, First of all, I want people just to look at portraits and to think more seriously about portraits as a complicated art form. As I say in the label, we have to think about a portrait as a competition between the patron's idea of who they are, the artist's idea of who the patron is, and the artist's own identity. And sort of seeing all of these balancing and competing ideas about identity are fascinating. I also think it's really important to think about self-fashioning in this moment, when we all have cameras and we take so many selfies and we post things that in many ways this is an earlier attempt to craft an an image. And I think that one of the things particularly that excites me about the Center Gallery is that it is a lot of people who are crafting images and ideas of themselves that are often at odds with who they really were or what was really happening in their lives. The men have often show a kind of authority that they maybe hadn't achieved yet or hoped to achieve or had achieved once but no longer had. And I think that we're also talking about a United States in the 20s and 30s that was going through an enormous period of turmoil and that gender and race and class were all sort of up for conversation, debate, that power structures around those identities were shifting and changing. So I think that that's the other thing I hope that people can sort of see is, is, is also the struggle to be a person, to have an identity, and how very similar that is, I think, to so much of the activity that we all engage in on Facebook and Instagram and, and, and all of these new places where we can post our own self-portraits and portraits of our, ourselves and how we wish we were or want to be.
2: Uh, The Benton is open Tuesday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and weekends from 1 to 4.30 p.m. I should note that the winter break for the Benton, as they have every year, uh, will start December 16th and then resume uh, exhibits on January 15th. So you've got a little bit of time to get to it, and then middle of January until March 19th. So plenty of opportunity, and there are lots of programs that uh, are attached to this uh, exhibition.
0: Excellent. Go check it out, everyone.
1: Yeah, I didn't know about Ellen Emmett Rand before this, so this is pretty cool. This
2: is the first major exhibition of her work in a very long time, uh, especially bringing things in from all over the country, Uh, Harvard um, uh, museums in New York and private collections. Cool.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Harvard because we're going to take a trip to Tom's History Corner, and it involves a Harvard man. Hmm. The year was 1901, and the University of Connecticut was in trouble. Uh, Three years earlier, the popular president, Benjamin Coons, had been forced to resign by the Board of Trustees over kind of a personal conflict. His uh, replacement as president was deeply unpopular. (laughs) Not entirely his fault. Things weren't in poor shape. There were only 18 students enrolled, and there were calls from newspapers and some lawmakers to just uh, essentially disband the university. Oh, my gosh. So enter Rufus Stimson.
1: Yes, another great name from UConn history. He was
0: a professor of English at UConn, and he was a Harvard graduate and a, a Yale, also had a, a divinity degree from Yale. And uh, he became initially interim president and then full-time president. Not all, So Rufus Dempsey, his great gift was public relations. He was uh, the first university president uh, at UConn to advertise in newspapers for the university. Hmm. He gave speeches all over the state extolling the virtues of the university. Are you
1: saying we have Rufus Stimson to thank for our very livelihoods?
0: We have Rufus Stimson to thank for the summer programs because he created it essentially as a PR tool. In 1901. In 1901, he created summer programs that were intended to teach like school teachers in Connecticut about science and nature. And also he knew they would go back and talk about how great the college was to their students and parents. So he accomplished a lot of things uh, that were also practical, too, like he brought electrification to UConn. There, were, <laughs> there was no electricity on campus before Rufus Stimson. It was a farm, after all. It was, exactly. He built Stores Hall, which is the oldest brick building still on campus. There was one that was uh, a little bit older. It was called the Dairy Building. They tore it down in the 1960s because they were unsentimental. Under Rufus Stimson, enrollment went from 18 to 125.
1: Students had lived here before, though, right?
0: Students had lived yeah. here before. But they lived like in houses, essentially, right, right. Um, or cottages, as they were called. Um, and also a little bit of trivia: His wife, Helen, first coach of the uh, women's basketball team. No way! Coached them to an undefeated season in their first season.
2: So is Gino has heard of that. Is it. she the woman in the the one picture that I've seen? Of, yes, of,
0: Helen, uh, the one who's not a basketball player, okay. Helen Stimson. Cool. So uh, after a very... Oh, and he also expanded the size of the university. He added 100 acres to it by, buying a, by convincing a trustee to actually put up the money hmm. to buy uh, some extra land. So Rufus Stimson got things done. Good
1: businessman.
0: Uh, and he left uh, to go uh, to run a Smith College's Agricultural Extension School. So we owe a lot to Rufus Stimson, but I... I'm really I, I'm I don't know why, but unless I'm mistaken, uh, unless I'm missing something, I don't think anything on campus is named after him. I
1: was just gonna say there's, there's no Stimson Building. There's a
0: Coons Building. There's a Beach Building. Who jo- was
1: the president he replaced? The unpopular Flint. Okay, yeah, we, there's don't no know, Flint, we don't yeah, know. We don't know who yeah. he is either.
0: Jorgensen, Bab. I mean, like these yeah. are all important presidents, but there's nothing. You want nothing. to start a movement? I do. I feel like the summer programs, maybe, or something. It should be the you know he started them, or uh, you know when we redid the uh, roof at Gamble Pavilion. We could have renamed the roof after Rufus. So when people we want were cheering. To name we could a roof. Because we could say they were. We could roof. We could say it's they the were. The Dunkin'
1: Donuts Center. There's the Rufus of Roof. Naming, the Rufus Roof. When they were cheering, we could say they were Raised raising the Rufus. The Rufus. <laughs> I may or may not no, have, have done is, this entire this thing to is make that joke. a really bad idea. But we should name something, we should name after something for Rufus, him. Rufus. I heard Stimson. there's a form that you can fill out. Yeah, <laughs> <to name laughs> there is, in
0: fact, <laughs> a form you can fill out. We are, after all, a state institution. We are. There's a committee, there's a form, there's paperwork. So we salute you, Rufus Stimson. Um, R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah, I assume he's dead. Um, he was president of 1901. be really impressive if be he re- wasn't. <laughs> if you're listening, Rufus Stimson, and you're alive. Are, you are the,
1: a scientific
0: marvel. There's a couple stories we want to do with you, so <laughs> please get in touch. Even if you're not Rufus Stimson and you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is on Twitter, uh, at UConn Podcast, uh, for me, at TJ Breen, or at main underscore old, and which I will post a picture of Rufus Stimson. Oh, one thing, all the pictures of him... He's in a carriage being pulled by a horse named Arteman, who is an imported French stallion.
1: He was a baller. He, w-
0: he absolutely was, Rufus Stimson. He was also really young. I think he was about 32 when he became president. Sweet. Yeah. Julie, what about uh, what about you? Was there anything you want people to know or any way they can follow you?
1: You can Follow me on Twitter at Julie Bartuka. Um, I got nothing. I got a new, not a new health journal. There's still some health journal stuff out there if you want to read yes. some cool articles. Healthjournal.yukon.edu.
2: Ken? As always, at today.ucon.edu and then Fridays at 11 o'clock on 91.7 WHUS in Stores, you can revisit yes. past episodes of the UConn 360 podcast in a slightly different form. Take a trip and, down memory um, lane. Maybe they get jumbled a little bit here and there, because uh, we're not just doing consecutive stories, we're swapping a few, you- so... That's going to be coming up soon.
0: Friday at 11 is a great chance to win over uh, a sweetheart by holding up a boombox outside their house <laughs> and Playing blasting our, our show beautiful like Lloyd Dobler. Yep. <laughs> All right, well, uh, thanks uh, for listening. Good luck again on finals to everyone, and uh, we're going to play you out with uh, the sweet sounds of UConn students decking the halls.
4: House of Holly, fa la 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 <laughs> la la la.